that. You may be seated. I invite you to take your your Bible and turn to the book of Genesis. I'm sure you were thinking I was going to say the book of Acts, but we're going to look at the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. I want you to turn with me to chapter 3 in Genesis. And our text this morning will be verses 14 uh, through 21. My goal this morning is to talk to you from this passage of scripture about how out of darkness comes light. How out of darkness comes light. But before we go any further, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. As we're in the book of beginnings, God, it's only fitting that we thank you for the Lord's Day. That this day is not a day that's been fabricated by man. But it was a day that was founded by you. The Lord's Day finds its clear root in the creative week. And so we're thankful. And then for us as Christians, it finds its root also in the resurrection of Christ. So every day we gather on the Lord's Day, Father, we are to be able to remember that you are both the creator and the, and the sustainer of the world. And then also that Christ is risen, our great hope. Father, I pray very simply that you'll help us to see this morning that in the midst of darkness, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of adversity, in the midst of one of the darkest moments in human history, out of darkness comes light. And Father, I pray for us this morning as we've gathered here together, there may be something that someone's going through that, that seems really dark and seems really hard. God, I pray that they'll be encouraged this morning. No matter how dark something may seem or how hard something is, there's always hope. And that hope is Christ. Father, there may be someone that's here this morning or someone that's listening that's still dead in their sin and their trespasses. Father, they're spiritually dark. God, I pray that the hope of Christ will be seen and savored in their life and they'll come to faith in Christ, turning from their sin and trusting Christ alone. Father, I pray for your spirit to illumine our hearts and illumine our minds this morning. God, we need your spirit's help. Father, help us to understand what we're going to look at God, help us, I pray, specifically that the familiarity of this passage doesn't cause us to kind of gloss over it or go kind of brain dead where we just, like, yeah, I know this story. Father, help us to really focus in and see what you have for us, God. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this Christmas season where we remember that hope was born, that promises were kept. So we thank you, we praise you, we love you, we praise in Christ's name, amen. There's a Latin phrase that kind of came out of the Protestant Reformation. I'm sure many of you have heard it before, post-tenebras lux. And it just simply means out of darkness, light. Out of darkness, light. And if you were to look at the season of the current the events at the time of the Protestant Reformation, you would see that's exactly what happened. It was a very dark moment in human history. The Catholic Church had 
completely taking control of the situation, both politically and spiritually. A lot of corruption, a lot there. And in all of that, the greatest tragedy, as you know, in the Reformation was, was the loss of the gospel. And so one of the mantras of the Protestant Reformation was out of darkness light, that no matter how dark the situation was, God was not going to turn his back on his people, and God was not going to turn his back on his promises. God was not going to turn his back on the gospel. He always has and always will raise up someone to champion the cause of Christ and recover the gospel. And we know that's exactly what happened. But historically, we do have to understand that while that phraseology might have come out of the Reformation, the truth of that phrase was not necessarily born there. Because we see that throughout the course of human history prior to the Protestant Reformation. In fact, if you were just to look at biblical history, you would see over and over and over again moments in the Bible, moments in the Old Testament where it seems like the gospel light was going to be snuffed out. Case in point, the flood. Right? Where God says about the people on the earth at that time that every thought and every inclination of man's heart was evil continually. But yet God preserved eight on an ark with the seed of the gospel inside that ark. We could look at the book of Judges. We could look at the time of David. We could look at King Saul. We could look at the prophets. Pastor Tom, we could look at the life of Jeremiah. And over and over and over again, no matter where you turn in the Bible, you see this principle, you see this truth, that out of the darkest of times, the hope and the light of the gospel shines. And I would suggest to you this morning that that ties in perfectly to Genesis 3 because outside of the crucifixion of Christ, Genesis 3 is probably one of the most easily, outside of the crucifixion of Christ, one of the most dark times in human history. It's tragic. It's sad. It's terrible. It's pathetic. It's unbelievable. We could go on and on and on with different adjectives and never be able to fully describe what happened at the fall of man and how bad it really was. Once you think about this, Every effect that you feel in your life is a result of the fall. Every detrimental effect, the aging process, sickness, disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, dementia, injustice, genocide, abortion, Dictators abusing their power and taking advantage of their people. People being exploited and manipulated. Depression, anxiety. Not to mention the struggles in our own hearts, amen? The daily bout with sin, when you wake up and you're like, man, I just don't know if I can do this again today. What about the weariness at the end of a week on a Friday? You go sliding into a Friday, barely sliding into home. You're so thankful that the work week is over. Boy, Monday comes quick. 
And you do that, that rhythm over and over and over and over again. That's why the hymn writer would say in the Christmas carol, the weary world rejoices. There's the weariness of life, the struggles of life, the dysfunction of life. All of the things that make life on this earth, what life on this earth is like, is clearly tied to one of the most tragic events in human history in Genesis 3. So I want us to look at our text and then I want to unpack it for us. Look with me at verse 14. There's a lot here, so we're only going to really look at what God says to the serpent and to the man and to the woman. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. And in pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. So you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Such a familiar passage of scripture, but such an important passage of scripture when it comes to worldview because it explains to us why the world is the way that it is. Every worldview has to explain why our world is so broken. And some people give certain answers and some people give other answers, but at the end of the day, because the Bible is true and right, when we look at the world, the weariness and the sickness and the struggles and the heartache, and all of the things that we face on a daily basis is clearly tied to the events of Genesis 3. And if you were to read prior to the consequences that were given, that we just read, you would know, you would find out that Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They, in chapter 2, had been given a clear command. In fact, Adam had been given the command, and he was then told to pass that command on to Eve as the, the leader of his family. And and they both rebelled against God. They, broke, they both broke God's commands. And because of that, darkness comes into the world. I want you to think about this, though, with me for just a minute. What makes this so dark? What makes this so hard? 
I mean, the easy answer, the Sunday school answer, of course, is, well, they sinned against God, they rebelled, they broke his commandment, and that's true. But I want us to think a little bit deeper than that. Because I would suggest to you that what makes this so dark is what shines so bright prior to the darkness coming on the scene. If you were to look at chapter 1 and you were to look at chapter 2 of Genesis, what shines so brightly in chapter 1 and chapter 2 is God's goodness. God's goodness. What do you think about that? You ever tried to stare at the sun? You ever seen the sun coming over the horizon and whoever's up here is preaching going... I was talking to Evie a minute ago, and I told her what a good job she did at the Nutcracker for her ballet. And she said, I couldn't see you because of the lights. You get the points. What I'm trying to say is when you look at Genesis 1 and you look at Genesis 2, what shines as bright as the sun in the sky or what shines like a light on a stage is the goodness of God. That's the backdrop of the tragedy of Genesis 3 is the goodness of God, that God is good, that God gives good gifts to his children, that all that God does is good. Think about it with me. After day one, after day two, after day three, after day four, after day five, all that God makes, he says, is what? It's good. And then after he creates Adam... On day six, after he creates humanity, after he's finished with his creative work, creating Adam and Eve, what does he say? It's very good. So I don't want you to read over that or miss that, that, that what makes this event in chapter three so tragic is the fact that God exists that God is real. That God is good. And that God created a perfect world with perfect laws. And he places man in a perfect place. And he gives them things to do. All of it speaks to the goodness and grace of God. Not only that, but he gave them his word. When you look at Genesis 1 and you look at Genesis 2, one of the things that we see over and over again <coughs> is we see that God speaks. Now, I don't know what that would have been like to hear the voice of God, to be in his presence. But God speaks. Let there be light. There's light. Let these animals be this way, and they were that way. Be fruitful and multiply. And all of it happens according to God's design, according to God's wisdom, and according to God's plan. They had God's word. They had his clear commands. I want you to tend the garden. I want you to work the garden. I want you to live in the garden. I want you to eat freely of any tree that's in this garden. Oh, but there's one that you can't eat of. So there were commands that they were to do, and then there were command. There was a command, there was a prohibitive command, if you will, something that they were not to do. And whether it was prohibitive or whether it was something that they could do, all of it was good. 
Just like when we open the Bible and we read God's word, all of the word of God is good. All of it. It's pretty awesome. So we have God's goodness seen in Genesis 1 and 2. We have God's word seen in Genesis 1 and 2. And then if you look at Genesis 3 and you look at verse 8, even though this is talking to us about life after the fall, Verse 8 gives us a clue to what the daily life would have been like for Adam and Eve prior to the fall as well. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. How awesome is that? That not only do we see God's goodness, and not only do they have God's word, but they had God's presence. What would it have been like to hear God? I don't know. What would it have been like to be in the presence of God like that? I don't know. Think about that, brothers and sisters. Unhindered fellowship with God. Let me put it to you on the lower shelf. Ready? How many times have you prayed and then as you're praying, you start thinking about what you're going to do after you're done praying? How many times have you started reading and as you're reading, you get three to four verses into what you're reading and you're thinking about what you did yesterday. Maybe it's just me. I don't know, but I struggle. This morning I was praying for the service, getting ready for the service. I'm praying and I'm thinking about, then my mind starts drifting. I start thinking about what I'm doing, gonna do next week. I'm like, what, wait, no. That's hindered fellowship with God. Could you imagine unhindered fellowship with God because there not being any sin in God's presence? Hearing God's voice, enjoying him the way that we were intended to enjoy him? They had God's goodness. They had God's word. They had God's presence. But then they had something else which is really, really cool. Look with me at... Let's see. Well, we'll just look at verse 8 again. And they heard the sound of the, look at this name that's given to us, Lord God. We know, we've studied this many times over the years here at Everglades. Whenever you see the word Lord in all caps, it's the name for Yahweh, which is the covenant name for God, the covenant keeper. That God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. That God is the creator and that God is the sustainer. And the word God there, when they're attached together, just lets us know that this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God is the one true God above all. Pretty awesome. She's like eight or nine different times just in Genesis chapter 3. It's one of the most consistent names that's used for God in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis. You think that's for a reason? Yeah, it's for a reason. So in this backdrop of the, the fall of man, we have not only the goodness of God on display, not only the presence of God on display, not only the word of God on display, but we are then introduced to the one true God as the only one that is the covenant maker, covenant keeping God he will do what Adam and Eve failed to do. He's the only faithful one, brothers and sisters. Not you, 
not me. Yahweh Elohim. So all of these things are on display for us in the text. Shining as bright as the sun. Yet in the midst of it all, the unthinkable happens. And Adam and Eve choose to rebel against God, his goodness, his presence, his word, and him as their creator. It's an amazing, unthinkable thing. It's an amazing and unthinkable thing. When you look at the text, notice in verse 7, the effects of this fall are felt immediately. What happens? Well, their eyes are both opened. So they rebel against God and immediately something has changed. And all of this are clues to the depravity of the human heart. The depravity happens quickly, immediately, instantaneously. Their eyes are open. They understand their condition. Pastor Tom mentioned this last week, but I'm going to go back to it again. Notice how they try to cover themselves. They try to cover themselves with leaves. You've ever done much work outside? You know this is true. No matter how big the leaf, once you sever it from the source of its life, what does it begin to do? It begins to wither. So this covering was a temporary covering in a lot of different ways. This covering was a pathetic attempt by man to cover their self. It wasn't going to last. It's really sad. This is what humans try to do. And you look at verse 8. Go back to verse 8. God's presence is there. They hear him walking. What did they do? They hide. They hide from God. This is what humanity does. Some people hide from God with a bottle. Some people hide from God with a vape. Some people hide from God with a, another relationship. Some people hide from God with work. Some people hide from God with money. Some people hide from God with prestige. Some people hide from God with their schooling. Some people hide from God in other various ways. Humanity has been trying to cover themselves and hide from God since Genesis chapter 3. That's not all that happens. Look at what happens in verses 10. God confronts in his grace. He asks him in 9, where are you? Verse 10. Now man is fearful of God in a different way. And Adam blame shifts. Basically he says in verse 12, in response to the question, why did you do what you did? Adam says in verse 12, well, it was the woman's fault. The woman's fault, God. You know, the woman that you gave me that I was so happy to have at the beginning when I was so lonely and I didn't have anybody else. And there were complimentary male and female animals all throughout the kingdom of earth. And, and then when it came to me, I was all alone. And you took my rib out and you fashioned this woman and you presented her to me. Yeah, that woman that I said, Wow, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. Yeah, that woman, it's her fault. Blame shift occurs. 
Not only that, but look what happens next. Verse 13. God confronts the woman. What have you done? And then she says, well, it was the serpent's fault. It's the serpent's fault. This is an utter picture of human folly and human foolishness and humans being pathetic in our helpless and hopeless condition without Christ. That's what this is. Think about it. The ultimate goodness being with God in unhindered fellowship with him and unhindered communion with him. You have his presence. You have his word. You have his goodness. You have his provision. You have everything that you could possibly need. But you give it all away because you think that God is withholding something from you that's better. You rebel against God. Everything in a moment is changed. And depravity sets in. And now you're filled with trying to cover your tracks, trying to hide from God and blaming everyone else and everything else around you for why you are the way that you are. Brothers and sisters, have you listened to talk radio recently? Have you watched the news recently? Have you heard the politicians recently? Have you paid attention to the laws recently? Do we not see the fruit of Genesis 3 and everything that's happening in our culture? People blame everything and everyone else for what's wrong with our world. We do it too, do we not? We do it too. So there's this unbelievable backdrop of God's goodness and grace and kindness and mercy. But yet now there's this unbelievable darkness that's set in. It's unbelievable. It's just so easy to read over it. We've heard it so many times. How dark and how sad and how tragic this moment is. In fact, the fact that we can't comprehend it speaks to how fallen we really are. But out of darkness comes light. Amen. Look at the consequence with me. Let's start with the serpent. Look at what happens. God speaks to the serpent first. Because you've done this, cursed, verse 14, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. A lot of people get hung up on this and they really only get focused on well does that mean that snakes at some point in time were not on their bellies but they were upright walking around slithering around like this it's not the point of the passage don't get caught up in that look past that look at what God is really saying notice it again this curse that comes to the serpent because the other thing we have to understand is that there's a greater reality than a physical snake here. There's, there's something else going on in the text. Dr. Selhammer said about this verse that this phrase, this dust of the earth you shall eat all of your life, is letting the serpent know clearly that he's a defeated foe. That he's a defeated foe. So as good Bible students, what we have to figure out is this. Who's the serpent? 
If it's not a physical snake, we've got to figure out, well, who's it talking about? So I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12. There's a lot here in Revelation 12 that we're not going to get to. But I just want you to know, from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is in harmony and in unity. There is no error. It's all inspired by God. And we believe that here at this church. And so sometimes there's a passage that you come to that you don't understand. But one of the principles of studying the Bible and principles of hermeneutics is that as the Bible unfolds in progressive revelation, greater light will be shed on those harder passages. So when we come to verse 9 of Revelation chapter 12, we're clearly told who this serpent is. Verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So who is this serpent in Genesis chapter 3? The Bible clearly tells us it's Satan. It's clearly Satan. And he's a defeated foe. I want you to go with me to Isaiah Isaiah 65. You had to ask me, what's your favorite prophet? Sorry, Pastor Tom. Not Jeremiah, it would be Isaiah. Isaiah 65 talks about the new heavens and the new earth. I want you to look with me at verse 25. Because it's in verse 25 that we find what I'm talking about here that Genesis points us towards that Satan is going to be a defeated foe. Look with me at verse 25. Remember the context. New heavens, new earth. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. Let me ask you, when's the last time you saw that in this earth? You're typically... In our world, wolf and lamb, predator prey. Predator prey. Not much harmony, <laughs> not much togetherness. They're not BFFs, right? They're not hanging out. They're not sharing straw or grass. They're not, they're not doing that. One's clearly trying to clear, kill the other while the other's trying to flee. But in the new heavens and the new earth, the Bible's telling us that world's going to be different. It's going to be marked by peace. Not only that, the lion's going to eat straw like the ox. Now look at this. And dust shall be what? And dust shall be the serpent's food. Do you remember the curse? Do you remember the curse? All the days of your life, all the days of your existence, all the days of your existence, you will eat the dust of the ground. All the days of, the, of your existence, you will always be a defeated foe. That's awesome. Even in the new heavens, even in the new earth, though everything else is remade, though all other relationships are mended and made right, the curse remains on the serpent. It will always be a testimony of the fact that God is the Redeemer. That he is the Yahweh Elohim, the creator, sustainer, promise keeper, 
the promise maker. That's what he is. And Rebel, excuse me, Isaiah 65 is letting us know it's a clear tie to Genesis chapter 3. Go back to Genesis 3 with me now. God also speaks to the woman. Now, I know some of y'all are itching to get to verse 15. We'll get there. We're going to go to verse 16 first. God speaks again. This time he speaks to Eve. And he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. And in pain you shall bring forth your children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What I want you to understand is what's the consequence that's given to the man and to the woman and to the land. They are all clearly tied to the blessings that God had given to the man, to the woman, and to the land. So when God is speaking to the woman here, he is speaking directly to what to the way that he had blessed her earlier in Genesis. That means that from this point on, every birth would be a birth in pain. Now, by God's grace, I've been there for nine births. One 10-pounder. That one was real painful for my wife. I don't know what it would have been like to have a baby and not have pain. Praise God, I don't know what it's like to have a baby. <laughs> but I've seen my wife and you other ladies that have been through it, you know. It's an event that's marked and filled by lots and lots and lots and lots of pain. So what was meant to be a blessing is still a blessing, but it's tainted by the curse. And so that curse means then that part of the blessing of having children is going to be marred by pain. And I think we could make an application here for both the man and the woman when it comes to children. And it's not only the actual birth of a child that often is marked by pain, but it's also the rearing of children, is it not? In fact, if we're honest, our hearts are probably more broken by watching our children turn away from God or rebel against God or walk away or whatever they do, choices that they make, it's very difficult. What was meant to be a blessing, this unhindered fellowship with God was tainted by the curse. Everything changed so that the raising of children would be done with tears and weeping and sadness and prayer and dependence upon God, of course. And the actual birth of a child will be marked by pain as well. Not only that, there was another creative blessing that was marred by the fall. Look at what happens. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This means that the marriage relationship, the relationship between the man and the woman will be marred by the fall as well. That those roles that God had given prior to the fall, that man was to be the head, that man was to be the leader, that man was to be the provider, that man was to be the protector, that man was to be the spiritual leader, the prophet, the priest of his home. All that would be marred by the fall. And that the man would become passive and, and not do, be tempted to become passive and not, not lead like he ought. And the woman would be tempted to, to get out of her God-given role to be the helper for man. 
and do man's job. So much dysfunction. There's so much we can talk about here, is there not? Think about how much marital struggle there is in the world. Think about how much marital struggle may have been in your home this week. Think about the things that, this is an amen, oh me, oh me moment, ready? But we have to go there. Think about the things that maybe you thought about your spouse this week. Think about the things that maybe you said to your spouse this week. That dysfunction, that sin, those words that are callous and careless. All of it, all of it is a product of the depravity of our heart and the fall of, human, of humanity. That the marriage relationship would be marred and tainted by the fall. That's why in the church and out of the church, the divorce rate is the same. Brothers, be faithful to your calling to lead, to guide, to provide and protect. And when the fall taints you, when you see the, the fall affecting your leadership in your home and you want to abdicate your responsibility and give it over to your wife because you're just too tired or you're just too passive or you're just plain out too lazy to do what God's called you to do, repent. And ladies, if God ordained you to be a helper and God gave you the role to come alongside the man and God is good, that is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Play that role to the glory of God. Look at what happens next. He speaks to the, to the man, to Adam. So there would be dysfunction in marriage. Not all the woman's fault, of course. That's not the point. Pain and child rearing and bearing. Now look what happens to Adam. Because you listen to the voice of your wife, you eat the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Work was a pre-fall reality. God had given Adam the, uh, the, the task to work and keep and tend the garden, to protect it. So it wasn't as if just because of the fall, all of a sudden work enters the picture. That's not it. But the blessing of work, you hear me say that? The blessing of work, the blessing of work was tainted by the fall so that from Adam onward, every person that works, it'd be a challenge. It'd be a chore. It'd be hard. Blood, sweat, and tears. Fatigue. My feet hurt. My back hurts. My head hurts. Everything on me hurts. By the way, did the bill stop just because your back hurts? Nope. Did the bill stop just because your feet hurt? Nope. You still, do, you, do you not get hungry just because you don't, you don't feel good? No. This world, this weary world, this, this, this constant thing of working, it's still a blessing. 
still a blessing, but it's been tainted by the, the curse, which means it's going to be much more difficult than it was in the beginning. In fact, <coughs> look at the text. <coughs> Thorns and thistles it'll bring forth for, for you. <coughs> Verse 19, you will eat by the sweat of your face. Jason, if they let a field go fallow, what happens to it? <coughs> if you don't farm that field, what happens? It goes back, doesn't it? A little bit at the time. A little bit at the time. But eventually it will be wild again. It's an interesting thing. Not only that, there's another penalty of sin that's there. <coughs> Verse 19, you came from the ground and you're going to go back to the dust of the ground. Just in case we thought that maybe God had forgotten what he had said, that the day, of you, the day in which you eat of it, you will die. He hadn't forgotten it didn't happen immediately for Adam. It didn't happen immediately for Eve. But God lets us know it will happen. You've heard the statistic, I know, 10 out of 10 people die. That's a reality. I saw a meme the other day that said, new statistic just in, 10 out of 10 people that had COVID still die. If it's not COVID, it's cancer. If it's not cancer, it's a, it's a car wreck. If it's not a car wreck, it's natural causes. It doesn't really matter. We're all going to go the way that everyone has gone before us. It's a product of the curse. It's a product of the fall. And so he's letting him know, while you're alive, you're going to age. It's going to be hard, but you're going to die. You say, man, Doug, this was like the most depressing sermon you've ever given. This is, this is hard. This is Christmas. Like, we should be having, like, presents and, and, like, a raffle. And, like, this should be fun. Brothers and sisters, this is why Christ came. Because this world has been tainted and marred by the fall. It's hard. It's a hard place. It's difficult for many reasons. And we haven't even talked about the fact that when Adam and Eve fell, they spiritually died. That every single person born after Adam and Eve would be born spiritually dead. No hope of spiritual life on their own guilty before God that guilt inherited from Adam and passed down to your children so when they say to you when you give birth it's a boy congratulations you just birthed another dead sinner let that sink in let that soak in there's a bright light that shined or shone God's goodness, God's word, God's grace, God's presence 
his covenant making, his covenant keeping, then this darkness ensues because of the rebellion of man. But yet out of the darkness comes light. Look at verse 15. Go to verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Where's the light? Right there. In the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the depression, in the midst of the weariness, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering, in the, in the midst of the, the wayward child, in the midst of the, the hardship, in the midst of it all, there's the light that shines. No matter how dark it is, no matter how hard it is, there is hope. And that hope is rooted in Genesis 3.15. The seed would come from Eve. One would be born from Adam. Birthed by Eve. The seed would come from her offspring. The seed would be bruised. But this seed would also crush the serpent. That's why he's a defeated foe. So what is Christmas really about? It's not about the turkey or the ham or the chicken or the deviled eggs. That's great. It's not about the presents. It's not about the time off work. That's awesome. It's about hope that was born in a weary world that had no hope. It's about hope for the person that's dead in their sin and lost in their transgressions under the power of sin and the penalty of sin, and they can't get out of it no matter how hard they try. There's hope for that person. What is Christmas about? Christmas is about hope. Promises made and promises kept. That God promised there would be a seed that would come. And that that seed came through a young virgin girl named Mary. That's why Anna and that's why Simeon were so happy on the eighth day when Joseph and Mary, according to the custom of the law, brought young Jesus into the temple to circumcise him. And they saw him and they both rejoiced at separate times, but they both rejoiced and said basically the same thing. This is the one that was promised. There's a messianic anticipation that goes from Genesis all the way to the Gospels. Is this the seed? Is this the one? Is this the seed? Is this the one? Is this the seed? Is this the one? Is this the seed? No, he's not the one. Is this the seed? Yes. Hope has come. He's here. Good news. You know what, ladies? For every child that you've born or every child that you will bear in the future, every childbirth is a gospel story, is it not? That out of pain comes hope. You know what I'm talking about. You hurt so much, and that baby's placed in your arms. I'm not saying you don't still hurt, but there's a lot of joy that wasn't there before. That joy is a gospel reminder that there would be one that would come to take away that pain, 
If you went to Revelation, you would find where it says that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Every wrong will be made right. This land that was cursed, he'll make a new heavens and a new earth. Pretty awesome. Yeah, I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you've been just struggling spiritually. I want to encourage you this Christmas to think about the hope that you've been given. Don't let the weariness of this world or the sinfulness of your heart or the struggles that you're having with other people cloud out the fact that the hope for all those struggles is in Jesus. And maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. And you've been searching and seeking and wondering or running. Can I just tell you honestly, this world will continue to chew you up and spit you out and step on you and stomp on you and take everything it has from you and leave you for dead. That's the way the world works. It's a hard place. It's a hard place without God. It's even harder when you realize that you can't be good enough. I want to encourage you this morning to turn to Christ and live. Think about this hope that you've been given, this hope that's found in Christ, this hope for the penalty of sin being removed from you so that you're no longer guilty before a holy and righteous God. And then this power of sin that's over you, you can be free from that because of Christ. Truth sets us free. That's you today, and you know that you need Christ. This hope that came in a baby. This hope that grew into a man. This hope that lived the life that you couldn't live and died the death that you deserved. That hung on a cross, was put in a tomb, and came back to life in three days. This hope is calling you to come to him today. Remember what we read earlier, Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That applies to you this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this passage of Scripture. There's so much that could have been said that wasn't said. Maybe some things that needed to be said that I forgot, but we'll trust you, Lord. I pray, God, that you take your word. You plant it down deep in our hearts, God. That it'll bear fruit that will remain. Father, if we are a believer here this morning, God, remind us of how, how much hope we have in Christ. We have so much to be thankful for. God, reorient our focus. We, we get so focused on the weariness of life and the weariness of this world and, the, and just the depressions and the anxieties and the the hardship and the adversities, but yet out of the darkness shines light, God. You picked us up out of the miry clay. You saved us. You're keeping us. You will save us. We have so much to be thankful for. Forgive us, God, for being ungrateful. And Father, for the one that needs you, I pray, God, today will be the day of salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand to your feet as we worship the Lord through song.
right, let's finish this morning with